Please rise as you are able for the reading of today's scripture, which comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. It is by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you must also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We've got some shining stars, in fact, among us today. Unexpected pleasure to have our youth choir from Tucker, Georgia. We were not expecting that, and they were not expecting it until Friday evening. Uh, They were south of us, and with the tropical storm, one friend calls another friend, and before you know it, uh, here they are with us. And uh, we're so glad uh, that you've been with us today. Uh, Today is Bring Your Own Georgia Friend to Church Today, by the way. Uh, because it's, it's a national holiday, because at 8.15 this morning, we actually had the choir from Athens, First United Methodist Church in Athens, Georgia, the intellectual capital of the world, in fact, there. And in fact, uh, I think, at least the ushers told me, that one of the Athens kids must have left their dog behind. Uh, has, has, any, <laughs> has anybody seen this dog before? He's on your bus. Okay. Well, that's Uga 10, and Uga 10 is not usually welcome across the state line in Tennessee, although I've noticed he's done much better in recent years than in the past. Uh, So take your dog home with you and do come back and join us. It's a blessing to have you here, and you were not… Some of the most uh, wonderful blessings are unexpected blessings, and you are one of those today, and we welcome you and look forward to hearing from you again. Well, we're continuing our series that we started three weeks ago called Heartwarming, and if you know that particular theme, you know that it refers to Wesley's great experience, which, by the way, we celebrated on Thursday this past week, May the 24th, the 280th anniversary of Wesley's conversion experience, where he records in his journal that his heart was strangely warmed as a priest of, at, at age 35. He had been a priest for 13 years. When he went to that Bible study and life was changed for him as it was for, in fact, the whole nation in England, the revival that began. And so we're thinking together about some of the distinctive marks of our faith in the Wesleyan heritage in this theme of heartwarming. The text that Sharon has read for us today is, in fact, from Paul's little note to the first church that was planted in Europe. It was the church in Philippi that was named after Philip, 
the father of Alexander the Great, was established in 354 BC. It was obliterated later and then reestablished as a Roman colony. And it was the Apostle Paul who planted a church there. He remained there in ministry for about a year and a half. And now he's writing from a Roman prison cell. His days are numbered. He is awaiting the verdict at any moment for the guillotine, and he's writing this little note to a church that he dearly loves. In what Sharon read for us, there is a concept that is very, very important to those of us on the faith journey. It is called sanctification. Now, that's a big fancy word. I went to seminary and paid $30,000 to learn it, so you'll indulge me for a moment. The root word of sanctification is sanctus. It means holy. It means to be set apart. Sanctification is the process of becoming holy. This is different from justification. Justification is what happens because of what God has done for us in the cross of Christ. Sanctification is what God has done in us through the ongoing work of grace. You might say that justification, that pardoning grace, is can, that can happen in a microwave second, but sanctification is more like a crock pot. You have to simmer for a long time, and then by and by, God's image is gradually restored in our lives. It's fascinating to me, Philippians 2, 12, and 13 contains a paradox, and I want to center on thus, just those two verses. A paradox is a statement or proposition that sounds like a contradiction, but on second glance, it reveals truth. Let me give you some examples. Pearl Bailey said, some of the biggest failures I have ever had were successes. That's a paradox. Mother Teresa said, if you love until it hurts, there can be no more hurt, only love. That's a paradox. C.S. Lewis said, someday you'll be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. Paradox. Here's one of my favorites, George Bernard Shaw. What a pity that youth must be wasted on the young. It's a paradox. I throw this in for extra measure. One of our teachers who just finished the school year said, teaching would be a great job were it not for the students. <laughs> Paradox. Oscar Wilde said, I can resist anything but temptation. That's a paradox. Richard Rohr, the 21st century Franciscan teacher who is the master of the paradox says, God is the only one to whom we can surrender without losing ourselves. I like that. It reminds me, paradox reminds me of another figure of speech. Perhaps you've heard of the oxymoron, where you put two words together that form a bit of a paradox, like when you go out to eat at a seafood restaurant and order jumbo shrimp. That's an oxymoron. Friendly fire. Government ethics. <laughs> Holy war. United Nations. Virtual reality. Deafening silence. Philippians 2.12 offers a paradox. Here's what it says. 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for that which is his good pleasure. I don't know about you, but I'm a little confused by that. In fact, it raises a question. Is salvation the work of God or of humanity? Is sanctification the upshot of divine agency or is it human effort? It is imperative, and I think that all of us might agree on this, I hope we would, to say from the outset that salvation is the gift of God, that grace in any form, whether it is prevenient, justifying, or sanctifying, is ultimately traceable to the fingerprints of God. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. I can't buy it or achieve it. It is pure gift. In another letter, Paul writes about this, Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So grace, by definition, is undeserved favor. It's unconditional mercy. However, once you have received God's justifying grace, there is a sense, isn't there, in which you are now engaged in the process. You are involved in the working out of grace in our daily lives. We do not work for grace. We work out grace. Mr. Wesley said it like this, he that made us without ourselves will not save us without ourselves. Let me give you an example of what I mean. The doctor, you go to the doctor, the doctor may prescribe the remedy, but you still have to pick up the prescription and you have to follow the directions and take the medicine. The medical professional can give you the prognosis, but you have to choose to receive the treatment. What's interesting about grace, says Mr. Wesley, is that it is not irresistible. You can choose to go your own way. I can choose to thumb my nose at God. In fact, a part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that you have a will of your own. Those of you who have two-year-olds, I don't have to explain that. To be made in the image of God means that you can make your own choice. As in the story of the prodigal son, you remember the lost boy in Luke 15, we can choose today to liquidate our inheritance. We can just leave the premises and take off for a far country, and God will allow it because God will not coerce. God will not manipulate or violate your will. In short, we who are chosen must also choose. Or as Randy Maddox, the great Wesleyan scholar at Duke University, used to say, we must cooperate with grace. We're saved by faith alone, but that faith that saves us will never be alone. It will always be accompanied by good works. But we don't do good works to be accepted. We do good works because we are accepted. Good works don't merit grace. They simply give evidence of grace. Someone said to me recently that faith without works 
is like a screen door on a submarine. That's not going to work out very well. James holds us accountable, the brother of Jesus, who writes that little epistle in the back of your New Testament where the glue's still on the pages. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if somebody says she has faith but no works, can that faith save him? If your brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food and one of you says to them, stay warm, good luck, go in peace, hope things work out, (laughs) without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it has no works, it's dead. By the way, the word work in the text that we just read is used three times in verses 12 and 13. The Greek word is energeo. You recognize the word. It translates into our English word energy, which conveys perspiration, which conveys calloused hands. It means you get your hands dirty. It means you have a sore back. It it means that you're bone tired sometimes. Believe it or not, there was actually a movement in England, a century after Wesley, in the 19th century, called the Keswick Movement, also referred to as the Higher Life Movement. And the Keswick Movement in the 19th century essentially taught folks that we are not to exert as Christians any effort in the Christian life. They taught that any striving proves that we are operating in the flesh, not in the spirit. And of course, we refer to Keswick, the Keswick movement now as heresy. But they based it all on one verse of Scripture which they misinterpreted. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I think it was an attempt to resolve the paradox between faith and works. Now, I have no idea what they did with those texts that talk about striving. And there are many, Hebrews 12:4, striving against sin, 2 Timothy 4, 7 talks about fighting the good fight. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Paul says it's like running the race. In Philippians 3, he says it's like stretching and lunging for the finish line. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount says it's like going the second mile. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, I labored more than any of the apostles. But then he adds, yet not me but the grace of God in me. Maybe it's not either or on faith and works. Maybe it's both and. Those of you from Tucker, do you remember our bishop from years ago named Bishop Lindsay Davis? You remember Bishop Davis? None of you remember Bishop Davis. He was a wonderful bishop. He is now in Kentucky. Some of you do. He was our bishop in North Georgia for 12 years. He was an avid golfer. A few days, a few years ago, his game was going south, he said. He was really struggling, struggling. and so he signed up for golf lessons, 
He went to a pro at a country club who took him out to a practice tee and he set up a camera so that he could videotape the Episcopal swing. And he did that, took the video into the clubhouse, put it on the screen on the monitor and split the screen so that on one side you had Tiger Woods with that perfect swing back then and on the other side you had Bishop Davis's, well, less than perfect swing. And the pro evaluated the whole thing and then he pointed out all the bishop's flaws. And the bishop was a little agitated and he said, is there just, can you boil it down to one thing for me? And he said, yes, you have a stagnant backside, except he didn't say backside. The bishop said, excuse me? He said, Bishop, you have a stagnant backside. When you swing the club, when you execute, your backside just sort of sits there and does nothing. If you want to experience the full power of a follow-through, then you've got to get your backside into the swing. And Bishop Davis said, I thought of the church. Present company excluded, of course, sometimes the church suffers from a stagnant backside. There is one organization in the world where backfield in motion is not a penalty. It's a blessing. What he said to the bishop was, you need to get it in gear. Now, I know that sometimes there are theologians that are so afraid we're going to emphasize human effort and wind up slipping over into works, righteousness, salvation. But I remember Fred Craddock saying that concern has driven many a clergy person straight into the hammock as the only place where the doctrine of grace can be kept safe. Let me let you in on something. You don't have to protect the doctrine of grace. God is doing just fine. <laughs> You don't have to defend unmerited love. You don't have to protect it. Don't iron out the tension of the paradox between faith and works. Wesley wouldn't do it. He said, and I quote, the truth lies between both. Doubtless we are justified by faith, he said. It's the cornerstone of the Christian building. We are justified without works of the law as any previous condition to salvation. But he said works are an immediate fruit of that faith so that if good works don't follow our faith, it is plain that our faith is worth nothing and we are still dead in our sins. That's Mr. Wesley for you. The first century father, Ignatius, put it like this. Pray as though everything depends on God and work as though everything depends on you. It's both and. There's one other thing I want to mention. I want you to notice uh, the pronouns in this text. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice I have accented, italicized, and underscored the pronouns because in the Greek, that's not a singular pronoun. 
This is important. Paul is not saying you individually work it out. You by yourself work it out. No, he's saying y'all. Did you know that Paul said y'all? There's a Greek word for y'all. And it's right here. Sanctification doesn't happen in solitude. You can't do it by yourself. Sherry and I remember when our kids were young, we were on vacation and Haley was four or five and she sees her brother playing cards and he's all alone. And she says to him, Andrew, what are you doing? And he said, I'm playing solitaire. And she said, by yourself? (laughs) You, You can't do it by yourself. After Pentecost, which we celebrated, what a Pentecost last week. After Pentecost, what did the new believers do? Go home to their individual homes and do their own salvation? No, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers of the people. These are the means of grace. These are the disciplines, these are the actions by which we exert ourselves through grace to grow in sanctification. This is the church simmering in grace. You can't do it alone. Mr. Wesley said, holy, listen to this, holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. Wow. The gospel of Christ knows no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. Faith working by love is the length and breadth and depth and height of Christian sanctification. Says Wesley, we have this commandment from Christ that he loves God. He who loves God loves his sister and brother as well. And that we manifest our love by doing good to all people, especially, especially to those that are of the household of faith. You know what's interesting to me is the scripture never says that we have to agree with one another. The scripture commands that we love one another. And I don't know, but I suspect that the greatest expression of love is found in how you treat those with whom you disagree. I mean, there ought to be a scripture somewhere that says, love your enemies. Let me give you an example and I'm finished. Some of you know the name George Whitfield, yes? John Wesley and George Whitfield, two of the greatest preachers in the English revival, were both used of God to bring literally thousands of people to Christ. They were friends in spite of the fact that they vehemently disagreed theologically on the issue of God's sovereignty and human responsibility in regard to salvation, a vehement disagreement. Wesley, of course, put a little more emphasis on human responsibility, while Whitfield emphasized almost exclusively God's sovereignty in salvation. There was a reporter one day who knew of this crease between them, 
who was looking for a juicy bit of gossip, a reporter. Imagine that. Never happens today, but apparently in the 18th century. And the reporter asked Whitfield this question. Do you think you will see Mr. Wesley in heaven? And Whitfield said no. The reporter responded, you mean you don't believe that Mr. Wesley is converted and that he won't be in heaven? Whitfield said, that's not what I said. You asked me if I would see Mr. Wesley in heaven. I do not believe I will see him because Mr. Wesley will be so close to the throne of God and I'll be so far away that I won't be able to see him. Don't look now, but that's what I call living the paradox. If by God's grace we have been saved, if it is none other than God who is at work among us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, then we must also be diligent, energeo, to work out our salvation in practical terms, in practical relationships with each other in obedience to God, even with those that we may differ. That's second mile stuff. That is not for the faint of heart. That's striving that grace produces in you when we seek to cooperate with grace, it not only changes the world, it changes your world. It changes your world. This is why we worship. This is why we come week after week to simmer in the grace of God so that we can go forth and serve as ambassadors of grace. May it be so for you all this week, for you this week, for us this week, even today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.